Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the case report by Dale et al. entitled Cerebrospinal Fluid B-Cell Expansion in Longitudinally Extensive Transverse Myelitis Associated with Neuromyelitis Optica Immunoglobulin G. We're also hoping to have a more wide discussion about neurological autoimmune disorders in general. The case report is due to be published in the September issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Mark Gorman, who is the Director of Pediatric Neuroimmunology at the Children's Hospital, Boston, USA, and by one of the authors, Associate Professor Russell Dale from Sydney University. Russell, please can we start with you to discuss the background? Uh, thank you very much. Well, neuromyelitis optica has been described for many, many decades, but really only in the last decade has it become clear that it is a very discrete and entity separate from multiple cirrhosis, and I think it's increasingly clear that this is an autoantibody-mediated disorder. It was around seven years ago that an antibody known as NMO, IgG, or neuromyelitis IgG, was defined by Lennon et al. And this antibody has been shown to bind to something called aquaporin-4, which is a water channel found on astrocyte foot processes. And really, in the last three or four years, this antibody has been shown fairly definitively to have pathogenic function, probably by a number of mechanisms. And this antibody now can define a subgroup of inflammatory demyelinating conditions, which has now been called neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, because it's no longer just myelitis and optic neuritis, but probably also includes some brain syndromes, particularly brain stem syndromes. So really, this is a model of an autoantibody-mediated brain disease that can show us the way with other putative autoimmune and inflammatory brain disorders. Mark, would you like to comment? I think that NMO is definitely a classic example and a highlight within the field of neuroimmunology recently in that it's gone the full spectrum of being defined as a separate clinical entity, um, developing clear clinical diagnostics criteria to create the subgroup, and then having found this autoantibody, which allows for an objective way to make the diagnosis, uh, and the importance of, of making the diagnosis early and confidently in NMO is that the treatments differ between either suspected monophasic demyelinating diseases like ADEM and from more classic uh, relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, and early and fairly aggressive treatment is indicated, generally speaking, in an MO. So it's the availability of this autoantibody test has definitely greatly enhanced diagnosis and treatment. One interesting, more recent development published by the Mayo Group is that there are some patients, and the exact number is not entirely known, that can have negative antibodies in the serum, but positive antibodies in the spinal fluid, which raises the question, should we be checking all patients in both the serum and the CSS? Is there a role, then, in those sorts of situations for doing a more generic test first, like oligoclonal bands, say, before looking for specific antibodies? I think the problem with oligoclonal bands is they're pretty nonspecific, and although they are a very useful marker when intrathecal synthesis of oligoclonal bands for multiple cirrhosis, I think a negative oligoclonal bands in this situation really wouldn't be discriminating. In fact, 
in NMO, you can really have any pattern of oligoclonobands. And in fact, this case was negative for oligoclonobands, and, and that wouldn't be unusual in NMO. I think a negative oligoclonobands probably wouldn't be discriminating enough. I think we're getting to the point now with this NMO IgG where the clinician is asking the question, when should I be testing using this antibody? I, I don't think it's quite clear yet. Certainly in adult neurology, if you have a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, you would do NMO IgG routinely because you would pick up positivity in a significant minority. In children, I think it's less clear, and most children who have longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis would be expected to be negative for NMO IgG. I suppose this case bucks that trend and actually tells us that, well, actually, maybe we should be testing for it more than we think. I think what was interesting about this case, however, is there was something a little bit different clinically. For example, the cord showed some cavitating features, which is certainly atypical in normal transverse myelitis, but it is fairly commonly seen in NMO. But uh, I think how often should we be doing NMO IgG is a question that I'm not sure we have the answer for yet in pediatric demyelination, probably more often than we are currently testing it. I would certainly agree with Russell that the indications at this point uh, are evolving. I've uh, generally tried to take the clinical and demographic and imaging features at presentation to decide on my overall suspicion for NMO and, and decide whether or not to send it. I've definitely sent it many times and it's come back negative. And there are patients who have clinically defined NMO who meet full criteria but are NMO negative. That's a, a definitely a challenging subgroup of patients because, again, generally speaking, we're using fairly aggressive immunotherapies, and it's always nice to have an objective biomarker. But there is, in the adult literature, at least about a 30% subset of patients who are NMO negative in, in the serum. The cavitation that Russell mentioned is very interesting and made me think of recent patients that we've diagnosed who also have had apparently cavitating lesions, and I was quite concerned about how she was going to do. And the cavitation ended up resolving and may have been some transient abnormalities in water flux with disruption in aquaporin 4. So that was a particularly interesting case. And so I think there are these clinical clues, um, like the cavitary lesions, severe bilateral optic neuritis. Um, if there are brain lesions in areas where aquaporin 4 is enriched, those would all be some clinical clues to, to send the test early. But majority of patients, in my anecdotal experience, um, most pediatric patients with isolated longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis will be NMO negative and will be typically monophasic. Just following on from Mark's point, I think making this diagnosis is increasingly important because discriminating a relapsing disease due to NMO, due to an autoimmune or autoantibody-mediated process from other relapsing conditions such as multiple sclerosis is increasingly important because the treatment is really quite different. So in MS, immune modulation is the sort of general key, such as with interferons, um, therapies, and obviously there are now these new monoclonal and other immune uh, therapies, whereas NMO is really treated as an autoantibody, autoimmune disorder with immune suppression. 
It's not clear which is the most valuable chronic treatment in NMO, but I think it's fair to say that mycophenolate, rituximab, and cyclophosphamide are all effective, but these wouldn't be considered routine treatments of MS, so you can appreciate the importance of discriminating between these two entities. Yes, absolutely, yes. You mentioned, for example, um, autoantibodies such as VGKC or the uh, MOG antibodies. Yes, the VGKC or voltage-gated potassium channel antibodies and Russell's published on this recently in pediatric patients. I think more broadly speaking, it speaks to the patients that get a diagnosis of, uh, quote, encephalitis. And we know that in very large series, for example, the California Encephalitis Project, in which there's very rigorous testing, only approximately one-third of patients with encephalitis will ultimately have a definitive diagnosis, um, whether that be infectious in most of those defined cases or another etiology, some of which are autoimmune. But that leaves us with the two-thirds of patients who have no defined etiology, and I think the autoantibody-mediated disorders are, st are starting to be a subgroup of patients within that two-thirds. For example, in the California Encephalitis Project, they had a subgroup of patients who they clinically defined as having a prominent movement disorder. Again, I think kind of speaking to the value of, pretty, of careful clinical characterization, and they had serum stored in those patients, and when the NMDA receptor antibody was discovered by Dalmail's group, they went back to the subgroup of patients, and approximately 50% of the subgroup of encephalitis with movement disorder was NMDA receptor antibody positive. And then the voltage-gated potassium channel antibodies have been well-described in adult patients with a variety of both peripheral as well as central nervous system phenotypes. And it wasn't until very recently that it had been detected and, and described in, in pediatric patients. Coming back to what you're saying about encephalitis, these are the particular clinical situations. Sometimes you can have a proven encephalitis with, say, herpes simplex, and the child appears to get better and then relapses with a second encephalopathy with a very prominent movement disorder. And that's always been said to be due to a relapse of the infection. The subgroup of patients who have HSV encephalitis and then have a later uh, relapse has been an interesting and challenging group of patients. I think, by and large, it's not clear whether or not those later recurrences are either due to reactivation of the infection um, or to an immune-mediated process. And I think within that subgroup of patients that have been reported, there have been some patients who have been positive for virologic studies, particularly PCR, but most patients have not and typically have continued evidence of intrathecal antibody synthesis. I follow one patient who had neonatal HSV encephalitis who is now approximately 10 years old and is still oliveponal band positive in, in the CSF. Um, so it does seem like HSV can generate this long-lasting immune response and whether, whether that immune response remains restricted to HSV antigens or whether it spreads to other self-antigens I think is unclear. Oftentimes, I think those patients end up kind of getting treated for both possibilities, covering with antivirals as well as immune modulation. What about other antibodies that have been more recently being looked at? Uh, and you mentioned the antimyelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody story. 
Yeah, so I think the other very interesting autoantibody uh, that has been described in the last three or four years in pediatric demyelination is anti-MOG antibodies, MOG standing for myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein. MOG is an extremely important component of a myelin protein on the oligodendrocyte. Um, it's actually a relatively small proportion of all myelin, but it's very important because it's extracellular and sits on the outside of the myelin sheath, so it's therefore available for autoantibody binding. The MOG story, the antibody MOG IgG story, presents a very important learning point about antibody assays, because in the 90s and in the early 2000s, there were a number of studies that measured MOG IgG, but using Western blotting. And Western blotting is a technique which alters proteins quite substantially. It degrades them and unravels them. And so what you're measuring in the experiment, an antibody binding to MOG, may not be what's happening in vivo. So increasingly, most new antibody assays, and certainly antibodies that are pathogenic, you need to use cell-based assays that express the antigen in, in its conformational state on the cell surface. And all of the receptors and synaptic proteins that are antigens such as NMDA and NMO are usually expressed with these kind of systems, with cell-based systems. So in the last three or four years, since 2007, which was the landmark paper, there have been papers now which all generally agree using cell-based assays to express MOG that around 20 to 40% of all pediatric demyelination patients will have antibodies against MOG. Uh, what's interesting is that this finding is not found in adults, so it's as though children somehow are different, and uh, children, some of these children, are producing these autoantibodies. And there's some early data to suggest that these are pathogenic. So what is interesting is maybe there is a subgroup of demyelination patients that can be defined by these antibodies. I think the big question I'm asking uh, in our group now is, are these patients different? Clinically, are they different uh, radiologically? And uh, should we be treating them differently? That's a question I don't know the answer to, uh, but I think it's a very important one. Russell and, and his colleagues have done the most important work, I would say, on antibodies and pediatric demyelination. That I think a, a couple of points that had emerged from, from those papers, one of which was, was very recently published, that I found interesting were the suggestion in the original paper that perhaps patients who had evidence of intrafecal synthesis of MOG antibodies may have been more likely to go on to develop multiple sclerosis. I think it was three out of the five patients in that original paper. And then the more recent paper is suggesting that the persistence of anti-MOG antibodies may define uh, patients who go on to develop uh, multiple sclerosis rather than patients who remain monophasic either with a ADM or a clinically isolated syndrome. Thank you. Can I ask you one quick question about another condition completely, please? Because I've been saying the classic pediatric paraneoplastic condition is optomyoclonus, um, and has there been any further insights into the mechanisms behind that? As you mentioned, um, optomyoclonus myoclonus, or OMS, is kind of a paradigm for childhood paraneoplastic conditions and approximately 50% of, of patients uh, with 
OMS have xeroblastome detected. And importantly, when looking at both the series and in current clinical practice, it's important to look at what methods are used to try to detect the neuroblastoma. Um, and it's clear that you need to use more sensitive techniques with either CT scanning or MRI scanning rather than rely just on ultrasound and MIBG scanning and, and urine catecholamines. Autoantibody in OMS still remains elusive, particularly in pediatric patients. There's been a long list of candidate autoantibodies, but none have been uh, proven to be present in, in the majority of patients with, with OMS. However, the work by uh, Michael Pranzatelli and colleagues in Illinois has shed some light on the pathogenesis of OMS. And in that group's work, they have shown that approximately 50% of patients with OMS have overexpansion of the B-cell subset within the cerebrospinal fluid, which typically comprises a very small percentage of the total lymphocyte population in the spinal fluid, but in OMS is expanded. So it seems, it seems that the, the B-cells are playing an important role. And Transitelli and colleagues have also published work using a B-cell-specific monoclonal antibody, rituximab, um, which is shown promise in, in the treatment of OMS. I, I think the exact role of B-cells versus T-cells still remains unclear in OMS, and, and hopefully the further work will be able to define a specific autoantibody as has been found in these other disorders. I think particularly the importance of finding that autoantibody is that although we classically think of you know, severe presentations of OMS, which have all of the classic features, obvious and severe opsoclonus is present. I think the diagnosis can be made fairly quickly. But there are definitely patients who can either have mild opsoclonus, which may not be detected, or patients who completely lack it. And in those patients, there's a delay in diagnosis, which may relate to a worse long-term outcome. Overall, the outcome of OMS is uh, poor, with approximately 70 to 80% of patients having long-term neurologic sequelae. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in OMS. Well, thank you. That sort of brings us on to what you think of the future prospects, both in identifying and treating this group of conditions. Well, I think, I think what this paper tries to do, even though it's uh, one case, I think it demonstrates the future is probably about two things. The first thing is trying to improve our repertoire of biomarkers. I think NMOIgG has taught us this, that finding an antibody can define patients that can help us treat them. And maybe the B cell expansion is a less specific but nonetheless useful marker of immune activation as well. So I think biomarkers are going to be an increasingly important uh, future. The second question I see is, what is the best way to treat these patients? Um, if it's autoantibody mediated, should we be removing the antibodies to the best of our ability? Is plasma exchange adequate? You feel like you're treating the plasma, but are you really treating the brain? Do we need to use other drugs? Should we be using drugs that have good access to the brain? And which of these drugs should we be using? I think the challenge with the drugs we have are that they are fairly blunt instruments. Steroids is incredibly blunt, but still very effective. Many of the drugs are fairly brutal uh, lymphocyte-suppressing drugs. 
I think what has excited in rituximab as an example of this is that we can be a little bit more selective in the drugs we can use to try to target components of the immune system, uh, although rituximab is still a relatively blunt tool. So maybe the future can be about even more targeted therapies, and the optimal thing would be to just remove the pathogenic antibody alone, but leave the rest of the immune system relatively intact. I completely agree with Russell, and I think also part of the future of these conditions, particularly in pediatrics, would be, number one, over the past five to ten years, I think pediatric neuroimmunology is starting to become defined as, a, as an established subspecialty within the field alongside epilepsy and neuromuscular disorders, and I think the some of the conditions that we've discussed today highlight the importance of that, that these are severe but potentially quite treatable conditions that require early diagnosis and treatment. Um, so I think moving forward, we'll start to see a kind of wave of newly trained pediatric neurologists entering this field. And you know in the U.S., there's been definitely a significant increase in the level of interest among trainees within the subspecialty. And I think the, the second part of the future would be collaboration, which will necessarily need to be multi-center and probably international, as many of these conditions are quite rare at an individual center, even even large uh, pediatric centers. And so to be able to, uh, to really define these patients and, and make progress, I think collaboration is going to be a key. I think the other interesting area for the future is the spectrum. And I think NMO demonstrates that beautifully, that you have criteria that is myelitis and optic neuritis, then you find a biomarker and you realize the spectrum is broader. And really, I think the future will include that for many other disorders. And I think oxyclonus myoclonus is another example. We recognize fully-fledged oxyclonus myoclonus syndrome, but we often miss the subtle and the incomplete forms. So really, it's like the tip of the iceberg. Which of the patients we are missing that could be immunologically treatable? And really, if we had biomarkers that were reliable, sensitive, and specific, then we can pick these patients up and treat them and prevent morbidity. We've now come to the end of our podcast time. This topic is one of the most exciting fields present in pediatric neurology, especially with the implications for treatment. Thank you both very much indeed, Dr. Coleman and Associate Professor Russell Dale. It has been fascinating. I hope everyone listening to it will also enjoy reading the article. And just to remind listeners, it's Dale et al., cerebrospinal fluid B-cell expansion in longitudinal extensive transverse myelitis associated with neuromyelitis optica in the neuropathy G.